0: This week, I watched um, actress Jennifer Garner attempt to uh, take Ben Affleck to a rehab center at a Malibu treatment facility. It was uh, just a sight to behold as I watched this um, unfold in just a couple of minutes' time on TV. They've been divorced, and Jennifer Garner, I think for a number of years, but they're trying to raise kids together, and she's trying to get him the help he needs without um, enabling him. And the car was parked in their uh, driveway, of their Hollywood home, and Ben Affleck sat in the back seat. Um, he was stooped low and looking pitiful. And this scene just is seared in my mind. Jennifer Garner walks out to the front lawn. There was uh, cameras and microphones and reporters. We call them the paparazzi. They had descended like locusts on the front lawn. And Jennifer Garden made a plea. Garner made a plea. She said to these uh, folks, she said, you know where we're going. You know what's happening. You know this is difficult. Do you need to make it any harder? It was a plea that they, that they would be able to leave their driveway. We take that for granted, don't we? They would be able to leave their driveway without any cameras, without any encumbrances. And it was just so plaintive and so tender and so human to hear her talk to these reporters. And it, as I witnessed this, I reflected on it. A couple of thoughts, i give them to you this morning. The first is this. It's just the reality of humanity. That the smallest substances have a power over us we don't like to admit. Even for those who are larger than life. Maybe the last part is key. We don't like to admit. Small substances exerting a power and influence over us that we don't like to admit. And When do we admit? When do you admit? When it's almost too late, when you're just at the end of your rope, when you have to get help, when someone you love is saying go. Small substances have that power over us. The second thought I had as I watched this and reflected is this pleasure principle of just living to get what you want to get when you want it. The pleasure principle leads to more debt, more divorce, and more addiction. That emanated from a really intelligent Stanford study And it's been corroborated time and time again. And some of us know this to be true. If we just live for ourselves, if we just use the freedom of being able to do what we want and loose the chains of restrictions and obligations and duties, just live for ourselves, it leads to this. A couple of questions I put in front of you as well. What is the place of self-control, self-discipline, and self-mastery. What is that place? Do we think of that much today? Do we, do we think of these words much? They've sort of fallen out of favor. It's a vanishing art to think about these words, not the elevation of self, not the promotion of self, but to control oneself, to discipline oneself, to have self-mastery. What is the place of that Today, you know, my challenge is to preach the Bible. Fascinating book. I believe it's inspired. I believe it's God's word to humankind. But it's interesting when the guy who talks about self-control in Galatians 5, he talks about the fruit of the Spirit. One of the fruits of the Spirit is self-control. But it's also the same guy in Romans 7 that said, hey, I am a wretched man. The things I want to do, I can't do those things. The things I don't want to do, I'm doing those things. I'm so wretched. And then he yields to Romans 8 that says that, hey, though I'm wretched, I am in Christ more than a conqueror. But he promises us that God in us can give us self-control. Self-control is being able to not do the things that you don't need to do. Self-discipline, on the other hand, is having the gumption, having the grit, having the ability to do the things that you ought to be doing, the things that yield life and calls you into freedom. And together they form self-mastery. A life that's lived on purpose. A life that's lived with intention. Second question, is there a practice from the way of Jesus that leads to more freedom from our disordered desires? Man, I, I don't know if you guys going to appreciate it, but I thought about that question a lot. Actually, every word I thought about that. Because there's something I want to talk about today that I, 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 I want to get it past your defenses. I don't want you to close down on me. But is there a practice, a practice from the way of Jesus not going to church sometimes, not flipping one up, not not casually trying to follow Him, but a practice, something that you put into the warp and woof of your life. It goes deep. Is there a practice from the way of Jesus that leads, what, to more freedom from our disordered desires? I tell you this morning that there are. You know that we're in a series. You saw the video. You've been with us. or been able to listen online. You know that we're in a series called Ask. We've We've ripped that word from what Jesus talked about in Matthew chapter 7. He said, ask, he said, seek, he said, knock. And some of you have pretty much memorized it by now. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened. For he who asks receives and he who seeks finds and to him who knocks it will be open that's a promise that Jesus gives us he's saying elevate the way that you see life we mentioned and some of you responded uh, to me this week but I mentioned last week uh, quoting from C.S. Lewis that prayer for many of us is just worrying out loud and Jesus offers us something different a way that we pray and that we believe we ask and we seek and we knock last week we talked about We talked about the ache and sometimes the agony of unanswered prayer. This morning I want to talk about a practice that with the right heart and the right way can yield freedom. Freedom from our disordered desires as we follow the way of Jesus. Jesus said ask. He said seek. He said knock. He mentioned in this context of Scripture, He mentioned here in Matthew 6 and 7, about some practices that are important. He assumes that there will be a part of our life. They were part of the religious culture, but all three had become disordered. All three had become uh, maligned in how they were being practiced. You know the three practices he talks about? Praying, fasting, and giving. And imagine that. Religious people had messed them all up. There were religious people who were doing those things to impress other people. Uh, Hypocrisy is the, the tag that we give it in their day and in our day. As well. Matthew chapter 6, I want us to read these words from Jesus. I'm oh, sorry, and when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your father, who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you so fasting isn't it weird like to think about fasting isn't it a strange ancient practice you know for folks long ago that's not relevant to people who live in an enlightened world when you think of someone who fast what do you think of maybe you conjure up some image of a little emaciated monk in a cloth who enjoys being miserable. Now you're thinking of a little emaciated monk in a cloth. See what I did there to you? But what do you think about? You, what, do you think about someone who's bright and educated and modern, or do you think about something a silly like that, a, a real religious person that's about to blow away um, in the wind? This practice is not weird. In fact, it can lead to freedom and to wholesomeness, to an integrated life, to a life of more self-mastery, self-control, and self-discipline, and freedom thereof. So what is fasting? I've watched some of you. Social media gives me a a portal into a a lot of people's world like it does you, and I've noticed that um, the trend is going upward when it comes to Lent and certain times of year when we observe uh, religious holidays and and. Times of the year, and some of you probably have given up something for Lent. And what I've noticed is that some give up alcohol, some give up caffeine, some of them, some of you give up TV watching, a uh, food, drink, something along those lines. Now, I would agree that all of those are fast. When you offer up to give up something, when you no longer do something that's a normal part of your life. I would consider that a fast, but I do want us to anchor in this reality. When the Bible talks about fasting, time and time again, the Bible is talking about when you and I, when we forego food, sometimes water, but when we forego food for a period of time for a specific purpose. That's what the Bible means by fast. Now, who wants to forget food? We got some foodies in the room, don't we? I just hung out this week with some folks who are visiting the Southeast for the first time, and they spent time in New Orleans, and nobody I know goes to New Orleans without talking about food. How many of you love food, right? I mean, I love food. I love In-N-Out burgers and Krispy Kreme donuts. I love Orville Redenbacher and Betty Crocker and Chef Boy RD and the Pillsbury Doughman and Aunt Jemima and Miss Buttersworth. Like, I love some food. Do you guys love some food? Like, food is a good thing, and it's okay to say this. Maybe not all those foods. Uh, That's debatable, right? But Jesus said this in the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread. You see, just as the Bible talks about fasting, it talks about feasting. And I know that when you feast, you appreciate a fast. And when you fast, you appreciate a feast. And God calls us into both. And so a fast is when you forego food, sometimes water, on purpose for a specific period of time. Now, we know that Jesus fasted, and if you notice the words that we read from Matthew 6, 16 through 18, Jesus said, when you fast. He said the same thing about prayer. He said the same thing about giving. Um, He calls us into a life of giving, praying, and fasting. Not if, but when. He says, when you fast, it's something that he did and calls us into. Look, you can't look through the pages of the Bible and not see it built into the rhythm of people's lives who are following after God, fasting is there. Before Jesus we see it in the life of Moses, we see it in King David, in Elijah, Uh, we see it in the priest Ezra, we see it in prophets like Zechariah, Jeremiah, and Amos. We see Isaiah calling the whole nation to fast for the cause of social justice to remember the poor and the hungry. We see Esther risk her life to protest. Some of you think it's wrong to protest uh, in any form you don't get that in the Bible. I'm not getting political. I'm just saying, you know, the country's not our God. But Esther was called by God to protest some injustice in the world with the king. And what did she do? She was smart. She was scared. She grabbed her friends and they went away and they prayed and they fasted before she risked her life in protest. That we see in Scripture of many different types of fast, Old Testament and New Testament. We see John the Baptist fasting, of course Jesus. We see Paul after he meets Jesus, he fasts for three days. We see the early church. When Paul would establish churches in that part of, in, in, the, in, in the Mediterranean world, we see that they would appoint leaders, but before they would appoint leaders, they would spend time in prayer and fasting. Paul himself, when he was commissioned, it was a time for prayer. And for fasting, we see it in Scripture. Now, just to teach a little bit, I want to give you the different kinds of fasting that are mentioned in the Bible so you'll be uh, educated a little bit and know a little bit about what the Bible teaches on the types of fast. There is a a fast that I I just want to call a normal fast. And a normal fast is when you forego food. uh, You drink water, but you just forego food for a certain period of time. In Matthew, we learn... In the temptation uh, in the desert, got to visit that area this February. But in this in this season, in this stretch of Jesus' life, it tells us that he fasted for forty days and forty nights. I remember I used to be skeptical about that—a fast for forty days and forty like that's no, you can't. Nobody uh, can do that. And then when we worked in ministry with Campus Crusade for Christ, we saw friends, new friends, who had fasted for forty days and forty nights, foregoing food entirely and just drinking water and a little bit of liquid. That is a normal fast. And in Matthew 4, 2, it says this about Jesus. Like, what a statement in the Bible. So understated. It says, Jesus fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, and then he was hungry. That's just good, that's just good right there. Like, thank you for that, God. And then he was hungry. But notice, uh, beyond the, being silly a little bit, notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say he was thirsty. So in all likelihood, he, for, he went without food, but he, he drank. So that's... That's a normal type of fast. And then there's a partial fast, Daniel chapter 1 and verse 12. Daniel and his guys were seeking God's guidance. Uh, there was something going on in the land, and it says that they chose, they made a covenant to eat only vegetables and drink only water. Doesn't that sound good? That's a, a partial fast, an example there of what the Bible gives us. John the Baptist, locust and wild honey, a partial fast of what he ate uh, in the desert. And then we see that there's... Um, uh, an absolute fast. We see this in Ezra chapter 10 and verse 6. He he went without food and water for several days. Uh, he was mourning over uh, the exile, over what was happening. And so he, he went without food and water uh, for many days. And then we see what I would call a supernatural fast. Okay, this is when you have to have a worldview. You have to have the belief in the supernatural because there's two instances that the Bible gives us where... Um, Someone fasted from food and water for 40 days, okay? That would be Moses on Mount Sinai and Elijah on Mount Horeb. Now, physically, that would be impossible, right? So here's what I want to say because there's lawyers in the room. I want to avoid litigation and never assume that I'm calling anybody to a fast for 40 days and 40 nights without food or water. It's a supernatural thing. I believe God intervened uh, and altered the processes of the body. Do not, if ever there's an opportunity to say this, do not try this. At home. So amidst the normal fast, the the partial fast, the absolute fast, the supernatural fast, uh, we see that they're private fast. This is the most common fast, and this is what we learn from our text today in Matthew chapter six. Jesus says, Hey, here's an act, here's a here's a rhythm that I want to be a part of your life, and I want you to do it in secret, not like the religious people. So it's when you you have a godly secret. Most time when we hear the word secret, we're thinking of something we did wrong or something somebody else did wrong, and we're about to be found out. we got to cover it up, or they covered it up. And we think of secrets in terms of guilt. But Jesus is saying, if you don't want to be healthy as a human, have some godly secrets. And this is one of those. It's a private prayer. Now, there also is an example in the Bible, many times over, of congregational fasting. In Joel chapter 2 verses 15 and 7, it says, blow the trumpet in Zion. It says, declare a holy fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the elders, gather the people, gather the children, gather those nursing on the breast, gather the, it says, let the bridegroom come out of the room, let the bride come out of her chambers. That's beautiful and poetic and kind of graphic. And it's basically saying, to everybody, let's all come together as a congregation and let's together fast and let's pray. It happens in Acts chapter 13 when the early church leaders needed God's discernment on a decision they were making and what did they do? They fasted. In the, and then lastly, let me give you two more. There's a regular fast. Okay, a regular fast is, you know this, it was established in the nation of Israel, the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur. It's, an, it's a time when... God's people annually fast. When Israel was in Babylon, in Zechariah, there was a declaration where the leaders added four more fasts, four more annual fast. So you have regular fast, and then you, you also have occasional fast. Look at this story, the middle of the story here, Matthew 9. Jesus is talking about, well, he's doing that very thing. He's telling a story, a parable. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And then what does it say? And then they will fast. In other words, this is not a regular fast. It's a situational or occasional fast. And to let you know of my life and my practice, what it's been up to this point, that has been more a part of my life. Something has happened. I'm seeking the Lord. There's a need. I'm repenting of sin. I'm requesting guidance. I'm asking for a breakthrough. Usually triggered by something something in the life of my own life in our family in the life of our church humbling myself attempting to humble myself as a leader and and it could be said about me because of this then i went away and then i fasted incidentally i missed this there was there's national fast we see this in scripture where the nation is called to fast and in our own nation i did a little research this week uh, john adams and james madison and three times Abraham Lincoln called our entire nation to fast. There were specific instructions they posted on Twitter of what they wanted people to do um, in this fast. So these are the different types of fast that the Scripture gives us. And so let me just say what a fast is not. We've talked about that it is in the Bible. It's foregoing food and sometimes water for a period with a purpose. But here's what it's not. It's not a legalistic practice. it's, It's not... A weight loss technique. It's not a hunger strike. It's not a way to perform for God to earn His favor. But it's a way to request His guidance, a time to move deeper into confession. It's a time maybe to see a great spiritual breakthrough. There are wrong reasons to fast. There are wrong reasons to pray. There are wrong reasons to give. When you fast, when you pray, when you give, but there are wrong reasons church in Corinth learned about love what love is love is love is kind love is patient love doesn't boast it's not proud or rude or self-seeking it doesn't delight in evil but rejoices in the truth is not easily angered it doesn't keep a record of wrongs love bears all things believes all things hopes all things endures all things paul would say to the church at Corinth and to us today if you can do all these great things if you have the faith to move mountains, if you can prophesy and things happen, if you can do all these things, if you give your life to the poor even, but you don't have a genuine love, then it is a clanging cymbal, a noisy gong. You're doing it for nothing. And here's what I want to say. I don't want to be a leader. I don't want to be a pastor who calls people into a practice that promotes pride, judgment, and self-righteousness. So, Anybody that attempts fasting, or if you have fasted and want to do more of it in the future, look, if it doesn't lead to love, something's wrong. Paul said in 1 Timothy 1.5, listen to me. Paul said in 1 Timothy 1.5, the goal of our instruction. why Why are you teaching us, Paul? Why are you standing up and teaching us? The goal of our instruction is love. It's love that comes from a good conscience, a pure heart, and a sincere faith. And that's what this act, in our giving, in our praying, and in our fasting. Let me round toward home with a few thoughts on fasting. I want us to put up here, fasting is a discipline, as a habit, as a rhythm. I chose those words carefully. The first two, we kind of recoil at them, don't we? Anybody like those words, discipline and habit? Some of you you do. We see you at the gym real early at 5 a.m. But for most of us, like we don't like those first two words. So maybe the third one will land softly on you this morning. But fasting is a discipline, as a habit, as a rhythm. If I were to walk over here today, and it looks like I am, and I were to pick up this this, um, thing, um, I would, unlike Eric Olson, not be able to play it. I would not be able to play it. Now listen, I looked at Eric when he was leading us. I longed to be able to play this instrument, to make a beautiful sound from the thing that he was playing. Like, it looks good. Like, I want that. I I have a, a sincerity that I would want that to happen. I admire him for being able to play that large violin. But, like, I couldn't play it. If I picked it up and drew back the bow, I couldn't, you know, do a Charlie Daniel song. I couldn't do a worship song. The devil went down. Nothing. Like, it wouldn't be a good sound because I'm not trained in how to play that large fiddle. We get that with violin playing. We get it with marathon running. We get it with rock climbing. But it gets lost on us spiritually. Oh, man, look. Hey, man, it's grace. It's grace. Come to me, me, all you are weary. Woo, I'm worn out. Living for me, but I'm worn out. Come to me, all you who are weary. Heavy laden, I will give you rest. Yeah, I'm just resting in Jesus. Resting in Him. Woo, thank God. He's good. We need... We need to lay hold of some ancient practices in our day. And I don't know if you've looked around much. And I know I'm getting up in some people's business today. But man, I've got a front row seat into the lives of bright, educated, smart people who lack self-control. And I'm looking all around at the church. Man, God's purging the church in America today. Do you, know, do you see this? And like there are leaders. Some of us have been following the same stories. Man, there are leaders that lack self-control and discipline and mastery. And a lack of accountability and a lack of habits and disciplines and rhythms that are healthy that lead us to life. Here's what Paul would say to Timothy. Paul mentored Timothy. Do you have a Timothy in your life? Do you have a Paul in your life? Paul said this in 1 Timothy 4.7. He said, train yourself to be godly. Every mountain climber, every marathon runner, every violin player knows you've got to train yourself. Why is this lost in following Jesus? Jesus would say this himself in Luke 6, 40. He says the student is not above the teacher. He's implying that we're learning, that we would all be involved in a learning culture. But everyone who is fully trained will be like their teacher. Do you train yourself spiritually? Are you involved in mentoring? Are you in a community group? Are you with people? Are you learning? Are you an apprentice of Jesus? You know, Jesus never said, go make a bunch of Christians. Never said that. He said, I want you to be involved in making disciples. Women and men who will learn from me. Who will be trained who will subjugate themselves, deny themselves, sit at my feet, and let my love flow in them and through them to marvel at my grace, to learn my truth, to be my apprentices, to see what I see, to feel what I feel, to do what I do, and then to let that life overflow into the lives of other people. A few folks over the last couple of years have come to me and mentioned their struggle with just not having joy. And it's an honor to be able to walk with somebody in this stretch. God has taught me so much about joy. Joy that happens that just burst upon me and joy that I have to choose joy that I have to train myself to experience and open my eyes to look for practicing the presence of God sensing his presence seeing God in the day today and just as the Bible as I said talks about fasting it talks about feasting there are festivals and holidays and days set up that God's people would come together and they would enjoy they would say hey it's it's bad today there's a lot going on in the world but we are together and we are going to sing and we are going to praise and we are going to choose joy I have told people as I've mentored some who are joy-challenged, I've said to them, for a month, take a day of the week and call it your joy day. And do the things, don't go too far on this, but do the things that you enjoy and find God in them. Listen to the music that you enjoy. Eat the food that you enjoy. Do the things that you enjoy. Hang out with people who are full of joy, who fill you with joy. Do you know some people take joy from you? So on your joy day, just look at them and say, hey, today's my joy day. I'll see you tomorrow. All right? (laughs) Discipline yourself. Have a habit. Have a rhythm of your life where you train yourself. If you are prone to gossip, you need a discipline of silence. If you tend toward isolation and loneliness, you need to practice the discipline of fellowship. If you have are or have been like me, this happened to me back in the fall, back towards the holidays, where you're struggling and battling hurry sickness and you notice that you're growing impatient with people in your life and your irritability is going up and you're waiting for things like the garage door doesn't open fast enough for you, then you need to practice the deliberate act of slowing I did in December. So you know what I did? For a full month, I made the commitment, I'm not saying I got it right every day, but I made a commitment that I would drive in the slow lane. <sighs> and I would stand in the long line. And it's a deliberate act of doing what the Bible talks about, waiting on the Lord. I would, then I, began, I escalated it, so I was at the checkout line. I would have people get in front of me. I'd say, here, go in front of me. I'm waiting on the Lord. <laughs> Try that. If you battle with hurry sickness, and some of you do, what disciplines do you have in your life? Look what it says. Now, I want us to get this right. So look at 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 through 8, I believe it is. His divine power has given us. Okay, you didn't give yourself anything. It didn't start with you. It started with his power because you're not powerful. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life, everything we need. Through our knowledge of Him who has called us by His own glory and goodness, through these He has given us His very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this very reason, circle this, make every effort, make every effort, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control, and to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, mutual affection. Don't you hate when you hug somebody and they don't hug you back? And to mutual affection, love, for if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being what so many of us are, ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Make every effort. You can only work with what you've been given. God has given you everything. So he, Philippians 2, he didn't want, it says to work out your salvation. Not work on it or work for it, but work it out. He saved you. Now live like it, work it out, make every effort. This is one of eight instances in the New Testament. I studied this week, eight instances in the New Testament where it says to make every effort. It says make every effort to enter into His rest. Make every effort to enter into the narrow way. Make every effort to be holy. Make every effort to maintain unity. Make every effort here. Make every effort that we would have disciplines, that we would have habits, that we would have rhythms in our lives. And so we've looked briefly at fasting as discipline, as habit, as rhythm. And I want you to look lastly, quickly, as fasting. Um, you're wondering where I'm going up there. Fasting as feasting and as caring. And I'm going to close with these two fasting as feasting. Two great stories Adam and Eve in a garden, it was lush. And beautiful, waterfalls flowing, birds chirping in flight. Beautiful day, felt like San Diego. And Adam and Eve are surrounded by all these good gifts from God, including an abundance of food. But they are tempted by the one who says to them, hey, I know your bellies are full and your hands are stuffing it in, but try this. I mean, is God good because He's withholding this? He told you not to do this, so you should try this. And you know they tried this. Sin entered and sin fractured the world. Rebellion began. In Matthew 4, Jesus is in a wilderness, not a garden. He's in a wilderness. and He's surrounded by stones and snakes and scorpions, and his belly is empty. And the tempter says, hey, how about a slice of bread? Jesus says no. And herein lies a principle that like we've lost it in this modern church today. Like we've, we've lost it. It's this principle when you lay down and when you decide to forego and when you deny yourself, when you empty yourself and you say... As Jesus said, look, I don't need that. I don't need the stuff that the world promises. It's empty anyway. I'm going to believe the truth of what God says, and He has given me enough. And in that, paradoxically, hidden, it's stealth and secret and covert, but in that, there is power. There's power. Man, how do you want to live? Gorging yourselves? gorging yourselves on everything around you and believing every opinion that people have for you and listening to that chatterbox in your own mind that's killing some of you with lie after lie after lie. Some of us on this very issue of food. Or can you believe the truth that God has? When we get away, when we make every effort, when we build into our lives the rhythms and disciplines and habits, just like some people can learn to play that. They can scale that and run that. We can practice His presence. We can experience Him. Would you stand? Even though I ask you to stand, i got one more little thing. Prayer is feasting. I'm sorry, fasting is feasting, but fasting is caring. Last week, I I can't do it today, but I put up Isaiah 58. And in Isaiah 58, he said, hey, here's the kind of fasting that honors me. And it's not what you're doing. It's a fasting that cares for the poor. It cares for the hungry. And I was uh, invited um, long ago to um, a dinner... I forget what the dinner was called, but we were invited and we knew the object of the dinner was to eat and enjoy company of some other Christian leaders, and we were raising money. It was a friend of mine who was raising money for relief efforts in the Sudan. And while we were there, as we entered the room, there were different tables. There was a table for 12 and a table for 8 and a table for 14 and a table for 6, and I can't remember exactly, but different size tables that we plopped down at. And there was a small table where the waiters came out and they were cheery and happy and they brought a sumptuous meal. And they were there, you know, asking them if they needed refills and what they needed. They were they would they were waiting on them. And there was another table of six people or so that got marginal service and mediocre food and it, it varied all around the room and there was one table, it was the largest table in there. They had to wait and wait and wait and they got nothing. There were, no one emerged from the kitchen. Of course, we were talking, chattering about what was happening and we began to clue in because we got some smart people. We started to clue in, hey, something's going on here. And this large table finally, almost toward the end of the night, uh, somebody, I wouldn't even call them a waiter, somebody with a bad mood just brought out a, a bucket of water and the water was brown and lukewarm. And if they wanted to drink from it, they had to use a little thing. I don't think anybody did. But man, we were dialed in then. And we knew that we were part of a teaching moment. That right in front of us, we were a microcosm of the world in which we live. And you see, our uh, gnawing hunger, what was happening around us, demonstrated the lopsidedness of this world that is not His will. When we pray, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, we're saying bring up here, down, bring up there, down here, and use me to do it. And there is a fast, listen for some of us, and let us be a church. Let us grow in this. We're going to start putting some resources up on our page and start talking more about this in groups. But And this is not legal. We're not invite, We're not saying do this or you have to do this. But look, there's a kind of fast that God's people ought to be about. And when we ache and we hunger, that little gnawing hunger, whether it's a fast for a day, a half a day, a week, whatever it is, that gnawing hunger represents a little pain, and that little pain represents a more persistent, larger pain. And so as our hearts are broken, we break for those. And then we move toward them to break the yoke, to break the yoke and to rebuild the walls, Isaiah 58. Father, thanks. As a leader, I know I fail. Sometimes I seek to please people. I look at the wrong metrics. I live at times in a shame.